In the 1993 classic Groundhog's Day, Bill Murray's character Phil Connors is trapped in a time loop where he relives the same day over and over again. By the time the movie ends, Phil has woken up on February 2nd for over 10,000 years. Each of those mornings begins with Sonny and Cher's chipper pledge of loyalty, I got you babe. It makes sense that a movie so concerned with time featured a seemingly immortal singer. No matter how the years pass, Cher has been around. As of this recording, she holds the record for the longest time between her artist's first and last number one hit. Over a 34-year run, she sang backup on The Righteous Brothers Eternal, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, duetted with Ofish husband Sonny Bono on the aforementioned I Got You Babe, strung together a run of three terrible number ones in the 70s, where she made the baffling choice to impersonate already marginalized racial minorities, before returning to the spotlight decades later with the massive comeback hit Believe. Not only was Believe the best-selling single of 1999, it also introduced auto-tune to the mainstream, and computer software would take over the world in the next few years. There was little Cher can't do, except time travel. Cher's late career revival began with the power ballad, If I Could Turn Back Time. The song's success had less to do with public affinity for Cher, and more to do with the woman who wrote it. At this point, Diane Warren has written 32 top 10 hits, including 9 number 1s. 1989 was the peak of Warren mania. That year, the songwriter for Hire pulled off a remarkable run of 9 consecutive top 10 hits, 3 of which hit number 1. She was so popular that she even knocked herself off the top when Bad English's glammy heavy metal swoon, When I See You Smile. was replaced by Millie Vanilli's, or the people claiming to be Millie Vanilli's, stuttering Blame It on the Rain. It was no surprise that Billboard Song of the Year was yet another Warren composition, Look Away by Chicago. If I Could Turn Back Time looked on track to be Warren's fourth number one that year until the U.S. government stepped in. In 1979, the Navy was struggling to find new recruits. The military branch, desperate to improve their image, reached out to a then-hot band. Following up on the blockbuster success of their iconic YMCA, the Village People scored a number three hit with In the Navy. The military thought it would be the perfect song for an advertising campaign. The band gave them the rights on the condition that they could shoot a music video on board a battleship. A month later, the Village People were dancing on the USS Reasoner. The advertising campaign was canceled after one officer finally figured out the song's meaning. In the Navy, like YMCA before it, is a not at all subtle song about cruising for gay sex. The branch shelved the project in embarrassment. It was years before the Navy let another musician climb on board. It was also the last. 
The music video for If I Could Turn Back Time was pitched to the Navy as a nostalgic ode to USO shows. The Navy eagerly lent her to USS Missouri, the battleship where Japan officially surrendered World War II. Cher wore a jumpsuit, but not the one they probably had in mind. Instead, Cher came out wearing a leathery garb of fishnet stockings and a G-string thong. In part of the video, she straddles the barrel of a cannon. It was basically a burlesque show on a national landmark. Veterans groups quickly denounced the performance as desecrating history. In response to the protests, MTV took the video out of rotation. The controversy killed the song's momentum and it stalled at number three. After the two embarrassments, the Navy permanently banned musicians from filming music videos on their ships. I'm sure they are the ones who wish they could turn back time. Hello and welcome to Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman and that's Puxatani Nate Youngman. Well, it's Groundhog's Day again. Besides being one of Nate's favorite movies, Groundhog's Day is arguably the greatest time travel movie of all time too. So, in honor of such an important holiday, we are going to do a time travel episode. But first, we need to define our terms. In October of 1966, the number one song in the country was By an Alien. Rudy Martinez, the lead singer and titular question mark of garage rock weirdos question mark and the Mysterians, alleges that he was born on Mars millions of years ago before visiting Earth to see the dinosaurs. It's not exactly clear what he was doing all those years before becoming a one-hit wonder. Question mark went back and forth on how much he really believed this story, but a major problem with this theory is that his parents exist. Like every other member of the band, Question Mark was the son of Mexican migrant workers. I find the real-life background of a group of amateurs, organ-churning nobodies who fluked their way to the biggest song in the country far more impressive than any gimmicky origin story. Question Mark would not be the last artist to use time travel imagery in their stage acts. Everyone from Afrofuturist Sun Ra to groovy avant-garde collective Golden Dawn Orchestra to rap forefather turned infamous cult leader and previous off-key subject, Dwight York, have all marketed themselves as time travelers with varying degrees of sincerity. This episode is going to be about real conspiratorial kooks who genuinely believe that they could bend time and space. You know, weirdos, like John Mayer. John Mayer does not buy the Navy's reason for kicking Cher off the boat. They already had a motive to stop people from thinking about if battleships could turn back time, because they already have. A popular rallying cry for conspiracy circles is the mysterious Philadelphia Experiment, a 1943 incident where the Navy allegedly teleported the destroyer USS Eldridge 10 minutes into the past. It is commonly held up as proof that the government secretly holds a time machine. Mayor wholeheartedly agrees. Mayor knows from first-hand experience that the government is coming up time travel because he's already done it. In a long-winded Instagram spiel, he wrote, Time traveling exists. It's been happening for years. And on January 8th, 2027, it will become public knowledge. That's the date of jump one. And no matter what we've tried to do, we can't hide it. One thing to know is that it's actually not all that special. You know how the internet was supposed to make us brilliant and we just laugh at memes? Time travel <laughs> is basically petty theft. And most people use it to just jump location and not time so much. You see, people are caught up in their own time. They don't often think far enough outside of themselves. It does make you very nauseous, though. Alright, sure, man, whatever. While Mara may not have the longevity of Cher or the hit-pack career of Warren, if he did time travel, 
His achievements are even more impressive. If Shea and Warren make it those four more years, they will no longer need to wonder what they would do if they could turn back time. Until then, we're just waiting for the world to change. Okay, with our definitions clear, let's turn to Act 1, Jazz Cat in the Hat. In 1870, a woman came out of the mountains of Tibet with keys to a new world. Helena Blavatsky was born in Russia in 1831. She left home at the age of 18 to wander the world. Her self-reported adventures included fighting alongside Italian revolutionary Giuseppe Garibaldi and pursuing Native American magicians in Quebec. But it was her retreat with Himalayan mystics that changed the world. Blavatsky insinuated herself in the then-popular seance circuit. But the usual ghosts weren't good enough for Blavatsky. She would commune with animals, telepathically move objects, and miraculously heal. As you might suspect, historians generally discredit Blavatsky as a fraudster, but her legacy surprisingly endured. In 1875, she launched a new religious movement called the Theosophical Society. Prominent figures of the era like Civil War General and alleged baseball founder Abner Doubleday, Irish poet W.B. Yeats, polymathic inventor Thomas Edison, and renowned physicist Albert Einstein all fell into the movement. We have already talked about how composer Alexander Scriabin's faith in theosophy influenced his music up to and including the Mysterium, a song that's performance was supposed to trigger the end of the world. Scriabin is far from the only musician to embrace the movement. Elvis Presley, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Van Morrison, Todd Rundgren, and Jimi Hendrix all studied on or embraced the philosophy. But Theosophy's strongest practitioners came from the jazz world. Musicians like Afrofuturist Sun Ra or fusion bass player Jaco Pistorius. But there was one jazz musician whose belief in Theosophy might have changed the world, Warren Tartaglia. While Tartaglia played the alto sax with some titans of his age, such as Yusef Latif, Cannonball Adderley, and Art Blakely, he is probably better known today for founding the Moorish Science Temple of America. The Moorish Science Temple preached a syncretic mix of theosophy, Marxism, and black liberation thought. In 1962, Tartaglia and other beatniks and jazz musicians moved their splinter group to the forests of New Jersey. A group of jazz beatniks settled into the 200 acres of Ong's Hat. The group thrived, living in a scattering of weather gray shacks, airstream trailers, recycled chicken coops, and mail-order yurts. Removed from trappings and sins of modern society, Ong's Hat was a sanctuary where people freely expressed any lifestyle they wanted. Some people took advantage of that freedom. Among those refugees were two scientists looked down upon for their radical views, Frank and Althea Dobbs. The Dobbs twins were raised in Texas in a UFO-worshipping cult founded by their father. Before Ong's Hat, both twins worked at Princeton, where they submitted their Ph.D. on something called cognitive chaos. In the remote locale, they were free to work further on their ideas. Their theories promoted the idea that people could tap into the unused portion of their brains and do things such as stop their aging and purge diseases from their system in an effort to train the powers of the mind to manipulate the quantum underpinnings of reality itself. That's basically like the pill in Limitless. And this isn't even the weird part. <laughs> Within three years, the Dobb twins and the community at large had stumbled upon an extraordinary discovery called the egg. 
The egg was a small pod-like deprivation chamber where a person would hook himself up to computers to chart their brain waves. The scientists would then distribute stimulants such as chemicals, drugs, sex, and other mind wave manipulators. Multiple reiterations of the egg were tested, but it was the fourth that finally made something happen. When the fourth egg was activated, the passenger and the device itself disappeared. Allegedly, moments later, it rematerialized. The passenger claimed that he had traveled to the dimension next door to ours 12 minutes into the past. Authorities began to take interest in the spooky action going on in the woods. But even when they pierced the veil between the parallel universes, they still had to face the dangers of our world. A nuclear accident at nearby military base Fort Dix threatened the residents with radiation poisoning. They claimed that the government stormed the compound there and killed seven members of the group. This is the story of Ong's hat. At least the version of events that started popping up again on message boards and internet forums in the summer of 1999. Rumors swirled for years that something profound had once happened in the shadows of the Pine Barrens, but they were dismissed as just that. But by 1999, more and more information about Ong's hat started to leak out. The man who seemed to know the most about the group was Joseph Matheny. Matheny posed as a kind of investigator whose research would turn up new twists. Online, Ong's hat became the Matheny Show. Matheny set up Incabula.org to house his complete research. Followers of the story started referring to themselves as eggheads after the ashram's transdimensional pods. Most who engaged understood that it was some kind of lark, a complex joke that challenged fans to explore the porous line where the real world ended and the game began. Skeptics of the far-fetched tale dismissed it as nothing more than the work of pure fiction. Others devoted their life to Matheny's cause, traveling down to the Pine Barrens to find the vortex to another world. But if it was all a hoax, it was surprisingly believable. Matheny included just enough information to be almost credible. There were some details that would have been impossible to have known without being present. The weapons-grade plutonium spill in New Jersey was covered up for years. Even the locals corroborated that there were military exercises near Fort Dix, which lined up suspiciously with the raid on the Ong's hat. The CIA was conducting the then-classified Operation Stargate, a series of experiments were fired on the Soviets by astral projecting into other dimensions. There seemed to be a direct line between the Hat story and research conducted by Nick Herbert. Herbert was a member of the boundary-smashing group at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. According to MIT's David Kaiser 2011 book, How the Hippies Saved Physics, from these serious yet playful forays into offbeat ideas like telepathy and contacting the dead, quantum information science was born. That is absolutely true. Writings on his personal site about a concept he called quantum tantra, Herbert described discovering a door and connected shamanistic concepts with modern physics. The egg itself is similar to the CIA's own program known as MKUltra, where agents would slip artists' drugs and sex in an attempt to mind control. Some participants who were roped into these experiments were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest author Ken Kesey and Grateful Dead founder and main lyricist Robert Hunter. As the lore and literature around Ong's hat grew, more people started to take it seriously, amassing a following of internet detectives who filled page after page on the web forums with research and theories about what really happened at Ong's hat. People on both sides of this issue have taken this story to bizarre conclusions. The Ongsat Project could arguably be called the first alternative reality game, or ARG, an immersive experience that sends players on a fiction-based quest set against the backdrop of the real world. These ARGs eventually morphed into the escape room fad. You know, I went to an escape room for my birthday. It's weird how my party was shaped in some ways by a time-traveling jazz musician that may or may not have even existed. At the same time, though, as the internet grew and commercialized, the mechanics undergirding these campaigns started showing up in troublesome ways, pulling in gullible passerbys and those whose sense of reality was already shaky. 
conspiracy theorists still hound Joseph Matheny and camp outside his home, desperate to learn the secret of interdimensional travel. Matheny had to march an unruly intruder off the property at gunpoint after an attempted break-in. Recently, the ARG model has been invoked to explain the spread and popularity of modern conspiracies like QAnon. After puzzling out all the details about a New Jersey commune, the egg, interdimensional travel, quantum experimentation, and alternate reality games, I'm not sure what is real and what is not. I've been a lot of places, seen pictures of the rest, but of all the places I can think of, I like Jersey best. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, great story, Dad. You know, some parts, you lost me, hate to say it. (laughs) Now it's time for my act, Act 2, Old Time Rock. All right, I'm going to actually start off with a question for you and our listeners. If you had a time machine, when would you go? What event do you wish you could witness or maybe even change? Listeners, shout out now. I didn't hear you. How about you, Dad? Well, I guess the thing I always wanted to go to or had attend was uh, Woodstock. And I was a couple years too young to go back when uh, it occurred, so... I'd go back there and... Oh, yeah, good pick. Now, there's so many events I would love to check out as a tourist. You know, see a dinosaur, find out what really went down in the grassy knoll, and to catch how different humanity is in a thousand years. But if I still had some time left over, I might as well just wipe this song out of existence. This is our fate. I'm yours. Jason Mraz's I'm Yours is pretty near the top on the short list of songs I absolutely hate. There's no real reason why. I hated it the first time I heard it and the millionth time later. And that number is hardly an exaggeration because while not exactly huge, it peaked at number 6. Radio kept it alive forever. Its 76 week run broke the then chart record for longest stay on the Hot 100. An historical injustice. Luckily, I know exactly how to wipe it away from history. I just had to stop by California's time machine. In the Mojave Desert, there is a rock. You probably already knew that. But this is a big rock. Huge. Giant, even. That's why they call it Giant Rock. Makes perfect sense. Yep. There's nothing particularly interesting about the rock besides its size. And perhaps that it is actually a portal to another dimension. The Giant Rock's history begins in the 1930s when German citizen Frank Kritzer stumbled upon it while wandering the desert. He quickly fell in awe of the monolith and decided to squat nearby. I don't mean he sat down on a shady spot. He went full groundhog, literally burrowing beneath the stone, and he proceeded to live in a hole he carved out for the next 10 years. Kritzer was better at home building than you might suspect. Using only dynamite and pickaxes, he excavated a large enough cave underneath the rock to set up a cozy 400 square foot home that stayed cool all year round despite the desert climate. Kritzer also installed a radio antenna on top of the rock, and he single-handedly built a road and functioning airstrip leading up to the rock. Obviously, he did not have any permission to do this, because the rock was on a federally protected national park. Luckily for him, the government does not have a task force to search a desert for mole people. Even if they did, Kretzer was not exactly friendly host. He was reportedly fond of waving his shotgun at anyone who snooped around. So while you would think he would not have to worry about visitors, Kritzer's rock turned into a certified tourist trap. Curious pilots, intrigued by the unexpected sight of an airfield in the middle of the desert, started landing with semi-regularity. Flying visitors were invited underneath the rock for a tour. It wasn't quite a cozy corner. The room was packed wall-to-wall with explosives. If they did not feel too intimidated, Kritzer whipped them up some delicious German pancakes. And the press latched onto the story of this kind-hearted coot 
and before long, he was welcoming a plane a day. By the end of the decade, he was talking about converting the area into a Vegas-style winter resort. World War II destroyed those plans. Public opinion quickly turned against the secluded, dynamite-obsessed German. Many suspected he might even be a spy. To make matters worse, he started to increasingly claim that he had magic electrical powers, and he bragged that he could charge batteries with the touch of his hand. You have to wonder if those powers eventually led to his death. What happened next has been debated for decades, but here are the facts. In July 1942, three sheriff deputies visited Kritzer to ask him about some missing dynamite. As the posse made their way down in the hole, Kritzer exploded. So, while they got their answer about the dynamite, all three deputies were badly wounded. One managed to drive 40 miles to the nearest telephone to get help, saving the other two. It is unclear what actually set off the dynamite stockpile. In the deputy's version, Kritzer screamed out, You're not taking me alive! I'm going another way and you're coming with me! Before detonating the explosions. Other witnesses say the deputies tried to smoke him out by firing a tear gas canister under the rock. In effect, the explosion set off the dynamite and accidentally killed Kritzer. Either way, Kritzer was dead, left in such horrible condition that deputies could only describe the remains as wallpaper. Kritzer's house under the rock sat abandoned for years, until taken by George Van Tassel, an aircraft engineer for the similarly eccentric corporate magnate turned movie producer Howard Hughes. Like Kritzer before him, Van Tassel quickly fell under the rock's mysterious spell. In 1947, he and his family settled under the rock. The Van Tassels renovated the property, building an above-ground house and maintaining Kritzer's roads. They reopened the airstrip and added a cafe. Howard Hughes regularly flew out to enjoy some of Miss Van Tassel's famous pie. It's a good thing Van Tassel opened the place up to visitors, because he was about to meet a group that certainly traveled further than anyone else. In 1952, Van Tassel announced that he had been inducted by aliens. The aliens were tall, tan, and spoke in posh English accents. So basically, Moth Tarkin from Star Wars. It is actually possible that the constantly drunk Phantasm just confused a group of English tourists for the inhumane freaks. Easy mistake. Van Tassel continued to be contacted, now by an ever-growing list of alien races, including Ashtar, Loktopar, Singba, Totoman, and Klautu. That last name is just straight up a copy of the alien race and the day the Earth stood still. We actually did a whole segment on the history of Klautu in that episode. Yeah. So either the screenwriter amazingly came up with the name of an actual race of aliens, or, hear me out, Van Tassel's a liar. No, no. <laughs> the Ashtar returned just a few months later. This time, Ashtar leader Solganda, a member of the Council of the Seven Lights, made a house call to Van Tassel. He woke Van Tassel up and escorted him to a UFO parked neatly on the airstrip next door. Solganda then treated himself to a tour of the ship. Tassel was apparently quite impressed by the retractable seating. You know, like they have in AMC theaters? Yeah. Alright, this is where the story gets weird. <laughs> I've been waiting for that because it hasn't been yet. Yeah. Before he left, Solganda supposedly beamed blueprints for a time machine into Van Tassel's mind. Called the Integatron, the machine, strong air quotes on this, uses electromagnetism to rejuvenate the body. In effect, Van Tassel could extend human life by hundreds of years. Additionally, the machine could also time travel and defy gravity. So, all good stuff. Van Tassel dedicated the next 28 years of his life to this quixotic goal, largely funded by donations from loyal supporters. People even began flocking to Giant Rock for yearly UFO conferences, all hosted by the Van Tassel's registered religious group, the Ministry of Universal Wisdom. With that many devoted followers, it only makes sense that Van Tassel would get into politics. In 1957, Van Tassel announced he was going to run for president in the 1960 election. He declared that by 1960, the Democrat and Republican parties would merge and four new parties would decide the election. 
which he was sure he could win with help from his alien friends. They had given him a canonoscope, capable of spying on anyone, anywhere, at any moment. As it turns out, he lost the election. Presumably, Richard Nixon and JFK did not have any shady secrets that could have derailed their campaigns. When his political aspirations fell through, he went back to building the Integratron. Each year, right when he was set to finish it, a mysterious cabal of Russian mystics stole his plans and machinery. Ugh, hate when that happens. He died of a heart attack in 1978. Although apparently, those who knew him to be in good health found his passing suspicious. Sadly, the machine was never finished, so Gonda was surely devastated. While the Integratron never fulfilled its purpose, the painstakingly constructed building remained. The white wood dome structure meant the house machine now sits four stories high and 55 feet in diameter. It's a 16-sided metal-free building constructed using a technique called joinery. The building uses no nails or screws to avoid interference with conductive properties of the machine, an effect Van Tassel subsequently undermined by lining the walls of copper wire. The unusual construction process resulted in an acoustically perfect building. Because of these qualities, the building was sold to a man who planned to turn it into a disco. As disco fizzled out, so did the Integratron. It sat empty for years. Van Tassel's equipment ultimately disappeared, making it difficult to determine just how much of his vision he had constructed. In 2000, it was bought out by three sisters, who opened the building to the public and now promote it as a place for healing, as well as advertising its unusual acoustic properties. In addition to meditation, the Integratron is also a recording studio. Due to its echoey design, the Integratron is a perfect place for harmonies. Musicians as varied as Moby, Erica Badu, and the Fleet Foxes have all recorded there. The Arctic Monkeys recorded part of their song, Secret Door, at the spot. Zwan. The alternative rock supergroup made up of members from Smashing Pumpkins and Slunt set their music video for Honestly There. The John Mayer ripoff he is, Jason Mraz also visiting Tegatron. I don't know how both of the suckiest balladeers of the 2000s kept finding time machines. To close us out, here is a clip from Skyway Man's 2021 song, The Rise of the Integratron, incorporating lines from old Van Tassel himself. All right, Nate, uh, thanks for that. Um, at this point, I don't know which of our stories is wackier, but uh, I guess if I had really go back in time now, I'd go back to the beginning of this show and start it over without these crazy people in it. Hopefully this will be a sane moment here where we finish up the show. Yes, um, we've talked about fantastical time machines. And how did we get this far talking about time-traveling musicians without mentioning my favorite? In the best-selling and probably just straight-up best movie of 1985, Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox plays Marty McFly, a lovable loser sent to 1955. In my favorite scene, Marty plays Johnny B. Good at the prom and inadvertently inspired Chuck Berry to record the song in the first place. I don't care that this is a time paradox. It's fun. I like it. In a weird way, Johnny B. Good is on board the closest thing we have to a real-life time machine. Another passenger on that craft was overdue a victory. In 1945, a blind street musician laid in the smoldering remains of his burnt-out home. With nowhere else to go, he stayed in the wreckage of all he used to have. That night, he slept in a waterlogged bed, 
before too long, he contacted malaria fever after being refused treatment at the hospital. As he lay there, dying in his bed, he saw only darkness. He had knew the stars were thrown across the night sky above him. He hadn't always been blind. As punishment for his father's wrongdoing, his stepmother threw lie in his face as a child. The last thing he saw before his vision dimmed forever was the night sky, and then he saw no more. From that night on, he became Blind Willie Johnson. Of the 30 songs he recorded between 1927 and 1930, one stands out among the rest. Dark was the night, cold was the ground. He did not think anything of it. He went on playing and preaching on the streets as he always had. The song, like its author, faded into obscurity, unaware of the immortality that awaited them. In 1977, 32 years after Johnson's death, NASA launched two spacecraft, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. The crafts housed a gold plate record containing the sounds and images of life on Earth, in the unlikely event that someone in the vastness of space might listen. 27 songs and pieces of music were chosen to encapsulate the wide range of humanity's expressions. Rock and roll was represented with Chuck Berry's, or maybe Money McFly's, Johnny Be Good. Dark was the night, cold was the ground, carried a more symbolic weight. The mostly instrumental track, Save for Johnson's Sorrowful Hum, captured the most human of feelings, loneliness. In the words of the NASA director that suggested the song, Johnson's song concerns a situation he faced many times, nightfall with no place to sleep. Since humans appeared on Earth, the shroud of night has yet to fall without touching a man or woman in that same plight. As the second to last track on the record, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, is followed only by Beethoven's String Quartet No. 13 in B-flat. Willie Johnson, a victim in his time, will now forever share space with perhaps the most renowned musician of all. Billions of years from now, when our planet has ceased to exist, eons past the last distant memory of a thing called Earth, there will be the sound of one blind stream musician and his haunting guitar drifting through the darkness. I wish I had a time machine to let him know. Alright, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.